Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. It's Lee here, and uh, I don't have Gretchen with me today because we're bringing you a special little um, little bonus episode. We are going to do an interview today with Robert Philipson, who you may recognize the name from our episode on queer blues divas, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith. Um, we're gonna we're gonna talk to the creator of the film "Ain't Nobody's Business." Um, and as, as we're going to get into things, he's got some, some wonderful other works that he focuses on delving more into the, uh, queer Harlem Renaissance. So, um, hello, Robert. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Um, we've been, we've been having a delightful dinner and talking. And then I, I stopped us before we got into all the juicy good stuff. But, uh, Robert has invited me into his home to talk about these things. Um, do you want to, um... Just introduce yourself, say a little bit about about yourself to this imaginary audience. <laughs> uh, my name is Robert Philipson. Uh, I live in Oakland, California. I uh, have been a an independent documentary filmmaker for the last twelve years, but that followed uh, various other career paths. One of which was a professor of comparative literature, which actually introduced me to black subject matter, which is very much part of my ongoing work. And being queer myself, when I started making films, I gravitated pretty naturally towards LGBT subjects and particularly the intersection of, well, I guess I call it intersectionality now, Mm -hmm. uh, of minority and uh, queer identities. Yeah. So how did you get into the process of filmmaking? You talked you talked about how comparative literature kind of is what you were doing beforehand. You were teaching and studying comparative literature, but what actually got you started in, in making films? Uh, it was an accident. I backed into filmmaking. Inadvertently, I wanted to videotape my father, who had grown up in Hyde Park, Chicago. He was getting on in years, and I wanted to videotape him walking around the neighborhood which he had grown up in. Just part of a family history project. But being a perennial student, I took a course in order to learn how to operate a video camera. It was an introduction to video production one. I had such a good time with it that I took another course in video production and another one. And then I realized that I needed to learn how to edit what I was producing. So I started taking editing courses and sound courses. And one thing led to another was working on student productions. Students were working on my productions. So I got introduced to the whole filmmaking process, and I found that I had a subject matter sort of ready to hand from the work that I had done teaching comparative literature. My academic specialty had been black and African literature, and I found myself teaching African-American literature. One of the last courses I taught was on the Harlem Renaissance, and it wasn't a course on the queer Harlem Renaissance, but I kept running in my research across these tidbits about how this person was gay or this person was lesbian. And at that time, this was in the late 90s, there hadn't been any works that were giving an overview 
Um, so I thought this would be a wonderful subject for a documentary. And it still is a wonderful subject for a documentary. <laughs> still more, uh, more things to be discovered and brought to new audiences. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, as, as you know, we mentioned specifically um, Tate Nobody's Business in our episode on the 1920s queer blues divas of the Harlem Renaissance. And I wanted to, to hear a little bit about um, the process of getting that project started. Were you approached from outside to, to tackle the film or did you, you know, just was that your diving on in with the subject matter you already had in your head? Nobody has approached me <laughs> from the outside <laughs> to do anything that I've done. It's all been, it's all been uh, self-motivated and mostly self-funded. So it's been, all of my projects have been um, shoestring budgets, but there's a lot you can do with a shoestring. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I knew how to do was research from uh, my academic background. So once I, I didn't expect to be doing the film that I did on Queer Blues Divas, but when I started looking at where there was openly queer expression during the 1920s, the blues was the place where I found it. Mm. And so <clears throat> it, that led me in that direction. Of course, wonderful history in music, as, as you covered in your own podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, a lot of fun to do. And it did very well on the film festival circuit and continues to do well. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, for sale on Vimeo as a, as a download or as a, or as a rental. And it continues to, I made it like eight years ago and it's, it continues to be a popular title. Yeah, it clearly is still making the rounds if, you know, we type into Google like, you know, gay lesbian divas, Ma, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and you know, you're popping up. It's still very much a part of, um, part of the conversation, which, and, and we specifically looked at it as, you know, we, we continued to find articles that continue to reference it too, which I think is, is true to the staying power of it. Do you have, do you have any favorite or most relatable anecdotes from, from the lives of these women? We uh, we had some in in our show that we we had our favorites, but I wanted to hear from you if there's anything that you're like, oh my god. <laughs> you know, actually, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the D. Reese biopic Bessie that she oh, that the, she made for HBO. Oh god, I that's the one with with Queen Latifah playing exactly. Bessie, right? Mm -hmm, and right. Uh, Monique playing uh, Maureen. I we actually have plans at some point to do some sort of episode where we we watch it and and have our reactions. Mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. excited to mm -hmm. see that. Mm -hmm. Dee Reese has really matured into a fine director. Mm -hmm. uh, her latest film Mudbound has received a lot of well-justified acclaim. I have my reservations about Bessie because mm. I know uh, the source material, or and she really lays it lays it on thick in the oh, first really? thirty minutes of the film. <laughs> yeah, um, it wasn't like that. Um, she uh, intimates that there was a sexual relationship between Ma Rainey and Bessie. Mm. Um, that's always been the rumor, but there's never been any solid evidence. Right, solid evidence, and. I'm, I'm actually kind of skeptical that, that 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 happened, but they were friends. So one of the sort of episodes in the history that that I like is that when Ma Rainey was in Chicago, mm. she had a party with her Corrines, and 
they got a little drunk and a little naked and a little loud and a neighbor called the police on them. And when the police broke in, they, they were, uh, the women rushed to put on their clothes. Mm-hmm. Ma Rainey, you know, sort of grabbed the dress, <laughs> dress. to her and fell down the stairs trying to get away. So she was, uh, hustled into a paddy wagon mm-hmm. and taken off, uh, and booked forth, uh, public indecency. I don't exactly remember yeah. what the, what the charge was, but it was Bessie who bailed her out. Yeah. Now this is, you know, this was actually, not known to the general public, and this particular anecdote did not become, uh, you know, there were no gossip columns in those mm. days. So people didn't know about Ma Rainey's bisexuality, but people in the business who were close to her knew about her bisexuality and Bessie's bisexuality. They knew about Ethel Waters' homo, uh, you know, lesbianism and mm-hmm. Albert Hunter. The people around them knew, but it wasn't common knowledge. Well, it, it just kind of reminds me of how, yeah, there's there's a um, there's a trend where you'll see two you know female characters in a television show or something like that, who clearly two queer folks are watching this and seeing it going. There's something here. There's something going on, and then sometimes you turn to some straight people and they're like, I don't, I don't understand. They're just. They, they just seem to be really good friends that, you know, gals being pals kind of thing. And it's, there's, we, we exist in between the lines in a lot of different ways and something like that where, you know, it's, it's, unless you're in the community that is making space for that, you know, sometimes it's just operating a little bit under the radar, whether. Oh, very much under the wh- radar. You know, wh- wh- whether intentional or not, even. Very too. much under the radar. In fact, the reason that. Bessie Smith's bisexuality and Ma Rainey's bisexuality became public knowledge is because there was a uh, jazz writer by the name of Chris Albertson who himself was gay. Mm -hmm. And during his research on the first book-length biography of Bessie Smith, came across this information, basically an oral history, got all of this from uh, Mm -hmm. Bessie's niece Niece. by marriage, Mm -hmm. She was actually the niece of her husband, Jack G. But she'd been with Bessie. She'd been at Corrine. Bessie took her around. They took her to the buffet flats where there was all mm-hmm. kinds of sexual shenanigans going on. And uh, she had firsthand knowledge of Bessie's bisexual activities and told Chris about it. And Chris put it in his book. Yeah, we read, we read very much of that. Um, just having that, you know, primary... Or close, as close to primary sources you can get was so was such a boon to be able to just hear this from somebody who is so immediately connected. Right, but that wasn't until like the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of time. And passed, then previous to that, I don't think anybody breathed a word about her bisexuality. Yeah, well, I mean, with with Ma Rainey though, you get you know, I mean, it's it's all there in their you know in their in their repertoire. It's all there hidden in the music, which is is so fascinating and I think what we found so exciting about it. One of the things that's, that's, that's remarkable about the blues idiom of the time is, is how straightforward and open it is about alternative sexualities. 
not just Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith who were the best known, but there was also um, this woman Jackson who who wrote. Be- oh yeah, Bessie Jackson. Yeah, Bessie oh, Jackson boy. wrote oh. Beanie Women Blues. That was just, Ooh, like, yeah. straight well, up. That's actually that's actually how we got into doing this episode mm-hmm. is you know I I will admit that I was completely ignorant of this element of the Harlem Renaissance. I had z- zero idea, and. I stumbled upon BD Women's Blues, and I was like, how did this exist? This is amazing. This is a gold mine. And it, it opened the door for the, just this this entry into this world that I I feel so so robbed of never, you know, you said you, you really had to do a lot of digging and finding these well, anecdotes. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't doing primary research like Chris Albertson was. <laughs> so the information that I was getting was, had been ferreted out by other people. But the thing, it's remarkable that there was any indication of, uh, alternative sexualities that was publicly performed in any venue, except during the pansy craze of the 1930s, mm-hmm. which you're probably going to get to into a future uh, to a future mm-hmm. broadcast yeah and that was that was exceptional because it was a craze but outside of that the general culture was not talking about homosexuality in any way shape or form except for in the blues and i don't want to overplay the content the gay or lesbian content of what was in the blues because we're still talking about a handful of songs mm-hmm. you take somebody like alberta hunter who was, had always been lesbian, had never, you know, there was this fake marriage that mm-hmm. she contracted, uh, with a man who probably loved her, but, <laughs> but left her shortly after, yeah, after they got married. <laughs> Cause she wouldn't sleep with him. <clears throat> and she was, she had a very, uh, active and long-term relationship with the niece of Burt Williams, Lottie Williams. Mm-hmm. She never sang, she never sang one song with any queer content whatsoever. Yeah. It's still very much just uh, was related to the folks in the And then the Bessie Jackson wasn't lesbian herself. But some some of those lyrics, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, I wanted to ask, so, you know, as we talked about, right, you know, we're a podcast dedicated to shedding light on overlooked queer people, people from history. And, you know, you're doing something so similar with your films. And I wanted to ask, like, why you personally think it's it's important for people to listen to these stories, you know, whether the folks who are listening in are LGBT people in the community looking for, you know, their own history or just broader straight society. Well, it's a history that's currently being... Uh, excavated and integrated into the larger story. You know, the first thing you have to do is the kind of excavation that we're doing. But then, and this is actually something that I'm I'm dealing with now uh, in the work that I'm doing. I'm currently doing a feature-length film on Queers of the Harlem Renaissance. And I've been reading about queer historiography mm-hmm. and the work of recent scholars. And it's not enough to say, well, this person was gay or this person was lesbian. And, uh, how, you know, what was the nature of their self identity? How mm-hmm. were they fitting into society at large? And how were they contextualized within their own community of non heteronormative, uh, you know, however they referred to themselves. Exactly. Um, uh, companions, um, and what kind of what kind of propulsive dynamic existed 
within that queer subculture where there was, when you look at the queer subculture of the Harlem Renaissance, it's astonishing how modern it sounds. Some of the slang is similar, Mm -hmm. some of the, you know, there's so much that we would recognize, particularly in camp culture. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's almost a hundred years old now. So it's important to, to recognize that not only have been, have we been around for a long time, but the dynamic, uh, that we're experiencing now, the discussions about what do we call our, ourselves? How do we relate to mainstream society? Mm-hmm. How do we, uh, what is our agenda and how do we move that forward? This is not new. No, we've all, we've been doing this for a long, long time and, and the context in which we, we talk about ourselves and identify, you know, are entirely dependent on, on the society and the societal ramifications around us. You know, Gretchen and I consistently have discussions and, and struggle with, you know, how do we, we really want to make sure that we contextualize these people or these trends in history that we are, are coming back on with a very modern lens. And, you know, even if we can't utilize the language or even a sense of, of identities on a lot of people from various elements of history, we can still look at these things and find familiarity Absolutely. in them, find meaning in them Absolutely. as, hey, my life, my identification, my behaviors are rooted in something that has been in human society since day one. Um, and I think that's important for anybody who's not in this community to understand as well. It's, you know, so many people get so caught up in, you know, oh, there's all these labels, there's all these, there's all these letters, you know, why this new, all these new things and being able to say, no, it's, it's not new. There have been a lot of elements at play in order to decontextualize and erase us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the uh, reasons that I think that the work that, that you're doing is important and that I'm doing is important from uh, the 1920s is that there was an erasure that took place in the 40s and 50s that um, where our history was suppressed and there was uh, a willful forgetting or simple ignorance on the part of the generation of queers that came of age in the 1960s and 70s where we didn't know what our history was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll never happen again. Let's, dear God, hope so. There's, I mean, as long as people are continuing to, you know, refuse to go back to that and to say, hey, no, we're going to continue to highlight all of these trailblazers and also, you know, just people living their lives. You know, I don't think that, I think, I think as long as the urge to continually shed light on it is there, I don't think that we can get the wool pulled over our eyes anymore. Yeah, and, and we just, I mean... <laughs> the world is changing. <laughs> it is indeed, you know, with the, you know, with the legalization of gay marriage. Oh, we're just never going to go back to a place where not only, not only are we demonized, but we didn't exist. Yeah. We, we can't, we can't go back there, but we were there in the 19, in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there had been all of this activity in the late 19th century uh, and in the 20s. It was an astonishingly open time for uh, for queer history and activity. And all that stuff was, was erased and forgotten. Yeah. 
sometimes very, very physically, too, just literal burnings of lots and lots of material and histories. And, you know, we, we just, um, we did an episode on, on Magnus Hirschfeld mm-hmm. and being just so infuriated that that newsreel footage and that photo that you see everybody in any sort of book about the rise of the Third Reich, the Holocaust, of Nazi book burnings, you know, and why did it, why did it take this long for individuals like us to discover that that is, that is queer content, that is queer research, that is trans research that was being destroyed, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, in the context of, hey, here are these really terrible things that these Nazis did. And I think I wasn't, I think it wasn't until I was like a teenager that I learned that, you know, that Jews were not the only people exterminated in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So with that, I think that's actually a really good transition to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, you mentioned on your website, Shoga Films, that you've approached your work from a very specific perspective, examining the interrelationships between several minority identities, blackness, queerness, Jewishness. I wanted to, you know, ask if you could talk a little bit about that and about what you feel about, you know, highlighting the intersections between these. Yes, I... I'm Jewish myself, uh, but my passion, uh, my intellectual passion is more aroused by, um, well, my queer identity has always been more problematic and contested than my Jewish identity. Mm. I was not brought up as a practicing Jew, and my parents were pretty anti-clerical, so I didn't have a bar mitzvah or go to synagogue or anything like that. So whatever Jewish identity I have is is much more attenuated and cultural than it is religious. I feel the very same way. <laughs> that was but it's my, still there. my growing up, too. But it's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, when I was in college, I spent five months in Israel working on a kibbutz and learning Hebrew. So I was exploring that aspect of my personality. Now it didn't take, but <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, I have, I have some understanding. In, in fact, one of my... Uh, the academic book that I published when I was, uh, was on a, a comparison of black and Jewish autobiography, mm. uh, published by the University of Mississippi Press. And so when I started, it was natural for me to look at the black LGBT experience. Uh, I was drawn to that. I had been teaching African-American literature and African literature, true for that matter. I lived in Africa on several different occasions and had done my dissertation research there. And obviously that led to a questions of intersectionality, which was not a phrase that wasn't coined at that time. <laughs> but... Thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always... It's simplistic, to say my identity is X or my identity is Y, you know, and I'd always felt that particularly as uh, a Jewish queer who presents as a white male, you know, mm. people look at me and they say, oh, he's a white guy, um, that my, the, the question of identity was far more complex than, than simply being one thing. Um, and this was, this was particularly true in, Black studies, mm-hmm. where the focus was on, you know, what was blackness and what was black about this pub subject matter. And, you know, it's only been recently that people who are biracial descent are thinking seriously about that and 
and describing themselves as biracial. Mm. Um, so, uh, having, being a queer Jewish director who was making films, a lot of films about the black LGBT experience was putting me in a lot of <laughs> intersectional situations. Mm. Uh, when I was at film, I, ha- I have a very vivid memory. I was presenting uh, Queer Blues Divas of the 1920s at the Montreal Black Film Festival. Mm. And there were a lot of uh, lesbians in the audience and a lot of black lesbians in the audience because in Canada, they don't get very much content. So um, they were there. And at the Q&A afterwards, there was this black lesbian who spoke up and she says, I don't know why you made this film, but I'm glad you made it. And I felt very good hearing that because the work speaks for itself. You know, people may have questions about, you know, am I the person to be making this? I'm the person to be making this because I'm the person who's making it. Other people aren't making it. And it ignites my intellectual passions um, in a way that corresponds to my own thoughts about identity politics. But um, I think it's healthy for other people to be exploring aspects of you know, I don't have a problem if somebody wants to talk about Jewish identity not being Jews or somebody wants to talk about queer identity not being queer. There are other perspectives that can add to the conversation. It's important that these stories are being told, mm-hmm. you know, and as long as things are being done from from a place of exploration, respect, and excitement in making sure that these stories are are out there, you know, I think that as as long as... As long as intent is good and, and it comes from a place of love and appreciation, you know, if it, if it brings value, if it brings value to those who are going to be consuming the content, yeah, why, and, why and not? Nobody's ever, you know, nobody's ever come up to me and said, you know, I object to the fact that you're making this film. People, like I said, the work speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What do you, um, what do you, you know, you've done, you've done quite a few you know, projects in this, in this area, in addition, um, you know, just a couple of months ago, um, your short film Congo Cabaret, which is an adaptation of one of Claude McKay's works, um, was, was going around the film festival circuits. What do you, you know, with, with this common thread through all of these, what do you most hope that viewers of your films take away after watching them? That there was a vibrant and complex presence in black culture, in this case, specifically the Harlem Renaissance. Um, the academic community has is now talking about the queer Harlem Renaissance uh, in ways that are understood and amplified within the academic community. I don't think the idea of a queer Harlem Renaissance has made it out into the general mm. populace so much yet. It's, it's coming. Um, there's a lot of scholarship that's, that's bringing it out, but I know because I used to publish scholarship and academic books and the kind of resonance I get from doing films is far greater within the general culture than uh, writing, you know, writing academic Mm -hmm. prose. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, to be able to present things in a format that is conversational or that is, is easily accessible and out of that you know, what can be, a lot of times be locked doors of scholarship and academia, mm-hmm. sometimes behind a paywall, sometimes most of the time behind 
Jargon. Jargon, exactly. Yeah, such difficult to access language. And, you know, I feel, I feel very privileged to be able to have access to that information and to interpret that information and disseminate it to people. And I think that that is, is one of the things that's beautiful about visual and audio media and, and auditory media mm-hmm. is, you know, that you're doing with your films. It, it brings these things to an audience that may not have otherwise been able to access this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I thank you for that. Um, just to take Congo Cabaret as an example. I mean, um, there's so much that's coming to light as a result of, uh, uh, of this project. Now, Congo Cabaret, which is an adaptation of a scene from a novel that was published in 1926 by Claude McKay, who was originally of Jamaican orig- origin. And it's now understood because of academic and biographical work on Claude McKay that he was, his primary sexual orientation was, was gay. Although he did have some relationship with ships with women, he was far more aggressive in pursuing relationships with men mm. than he was with women. And because he was gay, he was sensitive to that aspect of the culture in which he found himself because he emigrated from Jamaica to the United States. And he includes that in his writing. Mm. So in the novel Home to Harlem, you have gays and lesbians. Now that part of it escaped the contemporary readership. They didn't get it. They didn't see it. Um, and so in adapting, they also weren't the main characters. They were just part of the scene. You know, mm-hmm. It was a tapestry of, of uh, Harlem types. But in adapting that, that scene, I could make explicit what people at the time overlooked. Mm-hmm. Once again, you'll have, you, you do have academic works that go back and talk about Claude McKay as a queer writer, but that those are academic works that reach a very limited audience. Hopefully, Congo Cabaret is going to, uh, especially when it's integrated into the larger um, documentary, it's going to reach many more people who will say, wow, I didn't know that, and I want to go out and read that book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, you know, going back to Queer Harlem Renaissance, that's, you know, that seems to be the, the project you're working on now. It's, uh, you know, what you're putting most of your focus on. Can you tell, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, what to expect coming from you in the future with this, this project? You said, is this your first, this is your first feature length? No, I, I, uh, I had, uh, another feature length documentary about, Black and Jewish interrelations in American popular music mm. called Body and Soul. It's done very well into a lot of film festivals. So that was feature-length film. In the documentary world, 60 Minutes is a feature-length, so it's a 60-minute mm-hmm. film. Uh, Mood Lavender is going to be much longer. There's a lot of material to cover, and it's going to be a little bit innovative as far as the documentary uh, form is concerned because... Of course, I'll have interviews and historical footage and uh, beautiful stills and all of that. But I'm also going to be doing adaptations mm. of novels and works of literature that feature gay or lesbian characters, uh, illustrations of poems, animations. The, we were talking about Bessie Smith's niece, mm-hmm. uh, Ruby Walker, her interview with 
with uh, Chris Albertson. I have the audio for that, and I'm going to use the audio oh, for that. And that's going to be accompanied by animation where she, when she's describing the buffet flats. Oh, that's fantastic. So there's going to be stylized recreation of the drag balls that took place at the Hamilton Lodge mm. uh, in the late 20s and early 30s. So there's going to be a lot of stylistic uh, variety that's integrated into the documentary. It's going to be a lot of fun and visually quite lush. I think you can attest to that having seen Congo Cabaret. Yes, that was a lot of fun to, to watch, especially in theaters, you know, having it up on the big screen. It was really a wonderful way to take everything in. It just kind of drops you right there and you you feel like you've walked in on this this world that is at, at once very foreign and also very familiar mm-hmm. to to the viewer. So I think, you know, I, I think people will look very forward to seeing more of your work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, like every independent filmmaker, I, I've got to go out and raise some serious money, and that's quite daunting, but it's... Uh, it's it's part comes with the territory. Well, hey, if you put you know if you put together some sort of crowd fundraiser, we will happily put the link out there for oh, you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> you know we've got we got some listeners, I'm sure. You know. Well, in the interest sure of shameless self promotion, yes, absolutely. I'm just gonna uh, ask. <laughs> you know, please check out my website. Mm-hmm. It's Shoga Films S H O G A Films dot com, mm-hmm. and uh, Shoga is actually Swahili for faggot. So that's that's a whole other story. I I did my dissertation research in uh, in East Africa on a Swahili playwright, and I learned Swahili and learned about an indigenous form of same of same sex uh, culture. Mm. I hesitate call it, to call it homosexuality because that's putting a Western lens on exactly. this very indigenous mm-hmm. phenomenon. Wow. Yeah. So, so we can find you at Shoga Films. Um, do you have any other sort of presence on online? Any sort of social media? Oh, absolutely. That folks can yeah. follow you at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a Shoga Films page uh, on Facebook. There's uh, um, my Twitter handle is is Shoga Films. So uh, I haven't gotten into Instagram yet, but I'm probably heading that way. Perfect. But Facebook and Twitter for sure. All Shoga right. Films. Shoga Films. Awesome. Um, that's that's everything I've got in terms of my questions for you. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or mention that we haven't already discussed? I um I th- I think we pretty much covered the territory. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for you know having me, inviting me into your home, and um and you know giving us the the opportunity to talk with you and to. You know, hopefully continue to spread the word of the work that you're doing, which is very near and dear to our hearts. And we're very appreciative of just, you know, we are we are continually discovering more and more people of like minds who have, you know, such a passion for making sure that the stories that root us to our shared experiences and histories are continually brought to new generations mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah and i you know and, and i i want to thank you for you know having ferreted out the work that i did and featured it so prominently on the podcast that you did on queer blues divas it was uh was wonderful to hear to hear it referenced so often <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully there'll be uh other opportunities for you to uh 
particularly as you, as you yourselves get into the queer Harlem Renaissance, because that's a very rich period as well. Oh, yes. Well, I'm, I'm you know, 100% sure that this will not be the last time that we are talking, you know, and who knows, in the future, maybe maybe you guys will, will hear Robert's voice again. I hope so. Yeah, Thanks so much, Lee. Nice. Thank you so much. So yeah, it was really wonderful to catch up with Robert and get to chat with him. He invited me into his home, which was so sweet, fed me dinner, and then we got to a really fantastic conversation. I really hope that we get to do more interviews like this in the future. It'd be great. We're excited to see, you know, more possibilities coming down the way. And um, for those of you in the San Francisco Bay Area who would like to check out Robert's work for yourself in person, Congo Cabaret is actually playing in the San Francisco Black Film Festival this upcoming week on Sunday, June 17th at the Lush Life Theater. I specifically wanted to make sure that folks who heard this episode, who really loved our original episode on the Queer Blues Divas, got to experience some of that for themselves. Tickets can be purchased on www.sfbff.org. And uh, for those of you who can't make it, Robert actually gave us the privilege of sharing a tiny clip from Congo Cabaret with you. So we'll lay that down now. Welcome to the Congo Cabaret. The best pick-me-up place in all. Always packed with the best pickings north of the border. See, when them chippies comes up from down south, this is where it hangs out for <laughs> You can always find something. The New York ain't done made a fool of you. And a little something the folks down home ain't fool enough to be fooled by. And with that, we've reached the end of this bonus episode. History is Gay podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay podcast, Twitter at History is Gay pod, or you can drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Stay curious.